Emperor Frederick I had triumphed in 1162, Milan had fallen, the Holy Roman Emperor, whom later generations in the course of the Middle Ages called Barbarossa, the red-bearded one, had reduced the proud old Italian city to rubble. In this moment it was a total victory. Not a house was left standing in the city. Only the church towers of the Lombard city rose from the sea of rubble. Milan, as a member and leader of the Lombard League, had rebelled against imperial power in the northern part of Italy and paid a great price for it here in 1162. For remember, the Holy Roman Empire is not, as some suppose, simply medieval Germany. Not at all, it is a complex entity with territories in many parts of what is not Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, plus Switzerland, large parts of eastern France, the Czech Republic and Austria, and large parts of Italy. In Barbarossa's time, the power of his dynasty, that of the Hohenstaufen, was to extend even to Sicily and, at times, Jerusalem. Exhausted but satisfied, a man of about 40 years old approaches Emperor Barbarossa. You have done well, my dear Reinald. You successfully organized the army's journey from Erfurt to Milan, the emperor said to that man that approached him. I have only done what you expected from your imperial chancellor to do for Italy, replied that man called Reinald. I want to thank you for what you have done, Reinald. Whatever you wish, whatever is in Milan, you shall have gold, jewels, art, whatever, replied the emperor. Oh, you know, smiled Reinald, I just want one thing, something much more valuable than all the gold in Milan. And what might that be? asked Barbarossa. Reinald's response was short. Bones. And with that, off to the intro. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany, that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. Today we talk about how the bones of the Magi came to Cologne and why this was something very special. Connected to the story of how they came here is a man named Reinald von Dassel. <sighs> Another story with an archbishop I hear someone say, wait, Reinald von Dassel is a politician through and through, even a great warlord and hardly a clergyman, apart from his clerical offices. The interesting thing about him is he is hardly ever in Cologne, but he has shaped Cologne like hardly any other city ruler before him. Until today. Especially today, when you listen to this episode, as well as on all other days, his work, his legacy is still clearly visible in the city. If you've only ever been to the city of Cologne as a tourist, then you've most likely only been here because Reinald just did an important thing in 1164 that made you come here to the city. The theft, <coughs> I mean the transfer of the bones of the Magi from Milan to Cologne. What that is, I'll come to that in a moment. It is therefore important to note, 
It is true that Reinhard von Dassler was formerly Archbishop of Cologne between 1159 and 1167, but the office was for him quasi only the icing on the cake for his imperial career. He is no Heribert who resides permanently on the spot and carries out charitable things personally, but neither is he an Anno who exploits the already great power of the Archbishopric of Cologne to pursue his own territorial policy. Reinhard is none of these two extremes just mentioned. He sees himself primarily as an unwavering partisan of the Hohenstaufen dynasty, ergo of its current ruler at the head of the empire, Frederick I, or called Barbarossa. In everything Reinhard did, he was primarily the champion of the Hohenstaufen imperial interests. Only after that came for him everything else, like being a bishop or even Cologne city ruler. Reinhard was actually born to a good family of counts in what is now East Westphalia in the Duchy of Saxony around 1120. As a problem, he was already the second son of his parents and his older brother would become the next count. Secondborns, unless the firstborn died early, therefore often went empty-handed during this period. Gone were the days of great divisions of inheritance as once it was... Uh, in the days of the Merovingians and Carolingians. So what does one do as a second-born nobleman then? Then how can you make a career? With power and prestige. Right, aim for a higher church career. And that's what Reinhard did. After studying at the cathedral school in Hildesheim and in Paris, the top places for theological studies, he quickly came into contact with the Hohenstaufen imperial court. He quickly became friends with the Duke of Swabia, named Frederick, that Frederick who would become king from 1152 and later Emperor Barbarossa. When Barbarossa took office, Reinhard rose quickly and received well-paid posts in numerous monasteries as provost. We already know this life power of Cologne archbishops all too well climbing up the career ladder. That Reinhard is more concerned with temporal power than spiritual fulfillment, however, is shown by the fact that he is not an ordained priest, despite his numerous clerical trainings and holding numerous church offices. That's right, he holds church offices without being ordained a priest. It's great to be noble, isn't it? Maybe Reinhard wanted to keep open the possibility to marry after all, who knows, of course, this is only speculation on my part. Shortly before, in 1139, Pope Innocent II had decreed that all ordained priests had to be celibate. Previously, this had not been the case. Of course, the celibacy prescribed since then was something that not every clergyman took very seriously, nor did the popes themselves centuries later, and yes, I mean you, Pope Alexander VI, or also known under his baptismal name, Rodrigo Borgia. When the bishop's chair in Hildesheim became vacant in 1153, Reinhard let it be known that he was not available for this post. And even when, through the intercession of Emperor Barbarossa, he was installed as Archbishop of Cologne in faraway Italy in 1159, Reinhard continued to refuse to be ordained a priest let alone travel from Italy to Cologne. So again, for you guys to write it down, 
the now new and acting Archbishop of Cologne was not an ordained priest, let alone an ordained bishop, nor he wanted to fulfill his residence duty as bishop and travel to Cologne. He remained as a general and politician in Italy for his emperor. Incredible, isn't it? But Barbarossa was so powerful at that time and was at odds with the papacy anyway. One could afford such a thing then. And Barbarossa saw in Reinhard a strong ally in the fight against the papacy and rebellious North Italian cities. He simply needed him in Italy. And conveniently, the Archbishop of Cologne was also always the imperial chancellor for Italy. Practical. What made even more clear that Reinhard actually had a more secular career in mind, only after six years, probably after long years of pressure, he was ordained a priest in 1165 in Würzburg, not in Cologne, and then immediately afterwards became was ordained a bishop as well. Then, as already mentioned, he had already been Archbishop of Cologne for six years and had never visited the city. And now comes the real big thing, which definitely shows that Reinhard was not interested in the actual post of being a clergyman. In his eight-year tenure, Reinhard had spent less than a full year combined in Cologne. He spent more time in Italy than in Cologne or generally north of the Alps. So why become Archbishop of Cologne if you had no desire for the cathedral metropolis on the Rhine? For a long time, the office of Archbishop of Cologne had been, as I said, connected with the, that of the Imperial Chancellor for Italy. Reinhard was keen on this job. Here he could achieve a lot of political things by calling the rebellious northern Italian cities to order on behalf of his emperor. Barbarossa wanted to exercise an imperial immediate, immediate rule here. Unlike in the empire north of the Alps, where counts, dukes, bishops and other nobles wrestled rule from him at the local level. With the rich northern Italian peninsula in direct imperial hands, Barbarossa would be able to strengthen the emperorship once again and make it great again as it once had been in the time of Charlemagne or Otto the Great. The only problem was that in northern Italy, Many cities, like Milan, for example, had already achieved what the rich merchant class in Cologne could only dream of. There, in northern Italy, autonomous self-government and local constitutions existed to the greatest possible extent, giving the local economic elite a decisive political say in their cities. Reinhard was supposed to now turn back time for Barbarossa and smash all that in northern Italy. Cities like Milan were to be placed directly under the emperor with local officials chosen personally by Barbarossa. This, of course, created political and thus military explosives and conflict. For since Charles the Great had conquered the region here in northern Italy in the late 8th century with the destruction of the Lombard Empire, peace had never completely returned here and never completely extinguished the desire of the people living here to want to be independent, independent of Byzantium, the former Eastern Roman Empire, independent of Rome, and above all, independent from the empire beyond the Alps. Even after all these centuries, the Roman tradition, the, uh, the ancient Roman tradition, was still alive here 
that once ancient Roman cities could administer themselves largely autonomously, like Roman Cologne also had done. Reinhardt's Italian policy is certainly interesting, but it is imperial history through and through and has little to do with our Cologne, with one small, very prominent exception, of course, which we will come to in a moment. However, I want to make another exception. The Empire, which I call here mostly the Holy Roman Empire, was not actually called so up to now. It was often just called the Empire or the Roman Empire because it saw itself as a successor or better said direct continuation of the Roman Empire. Why I had already explained in an earlier episode. But with Reinhardt this changes. In order to emphasize the empire in the fight against the papacy, to enhance its sacral value and to emphasize its importance, he, Reinhard, calls the empire Sacrum Imperium in his documents, which he writes as Chancellor of the Empire. Sacrum Imperium is Latin and means Holy Empire, and with this, Reinhard added another ingredient to the empire besides the hitherto Roman addition. From this, we derive today, among other things, the official name, the Holy Roman Empire. But back to the beginning of this episode. It is 1162 and Milan lies in ruins after a long siege and probably involuntary surrender. The population was largely spared, but driven into the surrounding towns, only the church towers and monasteries still stood in the otherwise now completely destroyed and devastated city after the troops of the emperor and Reinhard had plundered the city. Reinhard now sees his chance has come to obtain the bones he mentioned to Barbarossa in the intro of this episode. But which bones did he mean? He means no less than the bones of the three magi. Who were the three magi? The story in the Bible tells of the birth of Jesus Christ in each of the four Gospels of Mark, Luke, Matthew and John. Born in a stable near Bethlehem or Nazareth, Mary and Joseph and so on. But only the Gospel of Matthew speaks of the fact that shortly thereafter, stargazers also came from far away in the east to pay homage to the baby Jesus. The Bible in its earlier version was mostly written in ancient Greek, in German, we often call these Magi kings, but interestingly, there's nothing about kings in the early versions of the Bible, but only the talk about magos, so magicians. And these Magi, they had seen the star of Bethlehem that appeared at Jesus' birth and had followed it to the place of the infant Jesus in the stable. Let us quote from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-2. to two. Quote, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. End quote. If you now think we are turning into a Bible studies podcast, I must disappoint you. I just wanted to show how small the, the talk is about the three magi, or the magi in general, in the Bible. Because that's it. That's all we hear about these wise men from the East. 
but there are many things the Gospel of Matthew does not mention. How many of these star interpreters set out at all, let alone how they were called? In all the documents and writings, there are sometimes three, but also four, even twelve in number. But quickly it becomes only three, as determined by the church father Augustine in the 4th century, who decisively shaped the medieval church with his writings and works. Why three? Three is a sacred number because the Christian God is triune with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And because, according to the conception of that time, there were three continents in the world, Europe, Africa and Asia. Also on the basis of the mentioned three gifts of the magicians to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that I have left out accidentally now, namely frankincense, gold and myrrh. The number is increasingly fixed on three because of that. Around the year 500 it happened that the three were given their names, Caspar, Melchior and Balthasar. And the three remains of the three magi, who were then simply recast as kings in several sources in the course of time, already in late antiquity, were in Milan? Already a long way from the Middle East to northern Italy, isn't it? Where did the relics come from? Supposedly from Empress Helena, who lived in the early 4th century, the mother of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Constantine the Great, also a big fan of the show, you know, we had an episode about him. A real power woman was Helena, what she is not to have found and donated everything. She is even said to have commissioned the Church of St. Gerion in Cologne, what is dubbed today, however, even if the original building actually goes back to the 4th century, and Helena certainly also stayed in Cologne. According to tradition, Helena had really a skill for finding relics. Whether you believe it or not, that was irrelevant for the people at that time. Helena is said to have found, among other things, the following. In Jerusalem, during a visit, she found the three crosses, together with the nails from the cross on which Jesus was nailed, buried in the ground on the hill of Golgotha. The tomb and the bones of the Apostle Matthew she also discovered. The people of Trier in Germany thus enjoy to this day the Holy Skirt, a garment which is said to have belonged to Jesus and which was taken away after his crucifixion by the Roman soldiers who were present at the crucifixion. At some point, it ended up in Trier. And hey, don't ask me how if that's true. It is not surprising, of course, that with such a keen sense of intuition, the good Helena also found the bones of the Magi at the same time and had them brought to Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire in late antiquity. However, they did not remain there for long, but were brought to Milan, the late Roman imperial residence and capital in the west of the Roman Empire, as early as the middle of the 4th century. The Milanese bishop Ostorgio there had a church built especially for them, but named the church after himself, Saint Ostorgio. But how did the bones now get into the hands of Reinhard and in the hands of Cologne? The Kolhoff Chronicle tells us how they allegedly came into the hands of Barbarossa and then finally into the hands of Cologne and the cathedral there. Although written only a few centuries later, in 1499, the chronicle served more or less as a late medieval-slash-early-modern Cologne city chronicle that incorporated a variety of old sources. And don't we love a good story or an entertaining legend? Yes, we do. 
So let's listen to the version of how the bones of the Magi ended up in the hands of Reinald and Emperor Barbarossa. Milan was about to fall, and everyone knew that the mayor of Milan would then had problems with um, um, being alive, since he had opposed the emperor beforehand. Now there was a nunnery in Milan, and the abbess there was the sister of the mayor of Milan, and she knew her brother was going to die once the city fell. She also knew of the, shall we say, pragmatic side of the archbishop of Cologne and the right hand of the emperor, so she secretly sent a message to Reinhardt. It said, To the Archbishop of Cologne and period Chancellor Reinhardt, meet me tonight at the city wall. I have important things to discuss, but please keep this meeting secret. It shall be to our mutual benefit. No sooner said than done. In the darkest night, and thus virtually invisible, Reinhardt stands at the Milanese city wall and listens to what the abbess has to say from the top of the wall. She says, I know that the Milanese citizens plan to surrender the city to the Hohenstaufen army, I mean your army, Reinhardt, the next morning. They want to surrender. Of course, this would also mean the death of my brother, who would then fall into your hands and the emperor's hands. Therefore, I propose you a deal. A deal? asked Reinhardt. Yes, you help me to put in a good word with the emperor, and in return, I give you the bones of the free magi. We have hidden them well in the city since the beginning of the siege. You will never find them without me. However, Reinhard said, Good abbess, thank you, that's a great deal, but the emperor is raging. For a year now I have been besieging your unruly city on his behalf. In his eyes it is treason and a breach of the oath of your brother that he once gave to the emperor. After all, he sees Milan as part of his empire. He will hardly let himself be dissuaded from executing your brother. The abbess agreed. Therefore, they both kindly thought of the ruse to make it happen that both got what they wanted. So, the next morning dawned. Indeed, in the morning, the gates opened and the population of Milan surrendered to the imperial army. Reinhard and Barbarossa entered the city they had besieged for a year. Finally at the goal and overjoyed, Barbarossa turns to Reinhard and he wants to thank his commander and the chancellor of the empire. You see now the version is somewhat different from my own imagined one from the intro, because Reinhard answers to his master, Dear Emperor, I will humbly have only what treasures this nun can carry on her back, pointing to the abbess with whom he had conspired secretly the night before. If that is all of the emperor unsuspectingly, then this shall be your reward, dear Reinhard. What happened next was hardly to surpassed in comedy. When the nun arrived, she was loaded with a very large treasure, but not with gold, silver or diamonds, but with her own brother, the mayor of Milan, tied on her back. Perhaps the cause of this legend seems familiar to some, Almost at the same time, the legend of Weinberg is said to have taken place, which ended in a similar way when the women rescued their men from the besieged castle in this way as well. When Barbarossa sees this, he completely freaks out. 
He immediately wants to order his servants to grab the mayor from the back of the nun and make him a head shorter. My lord, you swore, Reinhardt interjected, and you don't break an imperial oath. Grumbling and angry, the emperor realized that he had been outwitted. But Reinhardt and the nun had reached the goal. The mayor was alive, and Reinhardt was handed the relics of the Magi. Ah, such a beautiful story. Even it probably comes from the realm of legends. But the end of it is true. Reinhold was indeed in possession of the desired relics. In truth, it probably did not go quite as craftily as in this legend. During the sack of Milan in 1162, the bones of the Magi actually came to Barbarossa's possession first. However, they remained in the custody of the Bishop of Liège then. Only two years later, in 1164, Reinhardt received them as a gift from Barbarossa as a thank you for conquering Milan. The Bishop of Liège was certainly not pleased, but Cologne was a superior archbishopric and Liège was a bishopric subordinate to the ecclesiastical province of Cologne. And yes, when Emperor Barbarossa orders something, it is better to obey it. But there was another problem. The Bishop of Liège was not the only envious one who wanted to get into the possession of the relics. The relics were now in the possession of the Cologne church, yes, but they were physically not yet in Cologne, but far away in Italy. It was a long way over the Alps and to Cologne. A really difficult journey, a dangerous journey. What could happen during the transport of the relics? There might be an accident and... The relics might end up somewhere else, accidentally, of course. So the news that the relics of the Holy Three Kings, or the Three Magi, were to come to Cologne really called everyone on the plan, which ruled even remotely on the expected route of travel. So virtually all of northern Italy, southern Germany, and the Rhinelands. Everyone wants to have this treasure of relics for themselves. Why then were the relics so sought after. I mean, let's be honest, it's just some bones. Well, we have arrived here at a time in Christian Europe when Europe seems to be addicted to erratic treasures. The more, the better, and the closer to the Son of God or the saints, the better. Meanwhile, it was believed that healing and protective powers emanated from the remains of saints and not only from the saints themselves, but also from objects they had possessed or touched. So while some bishops or rulers had to be satisfied in their churches with what felt like the two millionth splinter of wood from the alleged cross on which Jesus was uh, nailed, or with a fingertip from an alleged saint or a handkerchief from that one, now in northern Italy a complete set of three complete bodies had been preserved. The bodies are three men who had seen the Son of God shortly after the birth personally with their own eyes. And not only that, they had met Jesus, but also Joseph and the Holy Mary in addition. And according to the Church of Augustine, they, the three Magi's, were the first pagans, that meaning non-Jews, who had worshipped and praised Jesus. Can you imagine why, in such a thoroughly Christian world, such a thing was worth more than all the gold in the world. Everyone who had even the slightest means of power 
wanted these relics. But wasn't it a sin to steal relics? Theoretically, yes. Stealing something is against the Ten Commandments. But where would we be if there were not a loophole here? A loophole that even Archbishop Anno had already used when collecting relics. For example, Bishop Anno of Cologne, on his way back from Rome, stole from the monastery of St. Maurice the Agon, I can't speak French, you know that, the relics of, saint, of the saints Innocentius and Vitalis. This loophole, stealing relics, was called Sancta Rapina, translated means sacred robbery. Why should the theft of relics be a crime? If the saint or the saints didn't want him or her and the remains to be stolen by someone, then surely the latter would not want to allow it. Wouldn't he or she? That is the logic behind it. If a saint doesn't want to get stolen, he would use his powers or her powers to um, not allow it. Now, of course, it is not a spoiler to say that the Magi arrived safely in Cologne. After all, they are still laid out in Cologne Cathedral to this day in a big uh, golden shrine. But the journey to Cologne was still adventurous. Let's take a short break beforehand. Many legends and stories entwine around how the Magi came to Cologne in 1164, he probably permanently mixed truth and legend. Let's go through my favorite versions. To protect himself from thieves, Reinhard wrote letters and sent them to Cologne. In the letter, Reinhard let be known which route he was planning to take and that he should be supplied with horses and provisions from Cologne along the way at the, the stations of the journey. The messengers, together with their respective letters, were of course intercepted by Reinhardt's enemies, but this was exactly what Reinhardt had expected and planned. Reinhardt's opponents, who were too eager to steal the relic treasures themselves, greedily read the letter and could hardly believe their eyes. Reinhardt's letter described such an illogical route from Milan to Cologne, with numerous detours and routes difficult to pass. Thereupon, they believed that Reinhardt had written these letters on purpose and had them intercepted on purpose as well and wanted to make fun of them with the improbable and arduous route, so making fun of them. And that was exactly what Reinhardt also had gambled on. The thieves ignored the route described in the letter and lurked along the known and proven routes to Cologne. In the meantime, the troop transporting the Three Magi relics did indeed take the route described in the letter and arrived unmolested in Cologne. But I also know the version that the horses that transported the cart with the relics had their horseshoes put on the wrong way around so that it looked like they were traveling in the opposite direction. Or the version where Reinhardt divided the bones into normal coffins and had them transport to Cologne disguised as those of fallen knights. Or were they sacks? Or were they put in sacks? There's also this version. Be that as it may, the relics arrived safely over the Alps, across the Rhone Valley, and then through Burgundy. Then they were loaded onto a ship and came directly to Cologne via the Rhine. During the entry into the city on July 23, 1164, you must imagine the scene. The entire population was on its feet, cheering the entry of the saints into the city at the city gates. The city was already packed with saints. 
whether it was with their supposed bones, clothes, blood, objects, etc. They were there already, but now with the Magi added to that, it was like Cologne really won the lottery. Cologne has always been an important pilgrimage site because of the abundance of its relics. One of the most important of all had been the staff of St. Peter, the apostle, and his chains in the city since Archbishop Bruno had brought them to Cologne, relics that had belonged to the great apostle and later first pope. The chains stood probably somewhat involuntarily by St. Peter. Already since the 9th century, the city had dubbed itself as Holy Cologne, Sancta Colonia, because of this and because of the abundance of its churches and relics. But now Cologne had finally become one of the pilgrimage centers in Europe, along with Santiago de Compostela and Rome. The people of Cologne saw their acting bishop here for the first time in 1164, and not for long, but they had taken him straight to their hearts. The people of Cologne knew what a priceless treasure Reinhard had brought to their city. Despite his equally foreign origins, Reinhard was as popular as Archbishop Anno had once been unpopular. Also, the way of the relics into the city is peppered with legends. I, too, learned that the relics entered the city through the Roman city wall in the south, which still existed at that time, near today's Heumarket Square. More precisely, through the later named Dreikönigenpförtchen, or in Cologne, Dreikönigepörtchen, or in English, the Gate of the Three Kings, as I told you the three magis are called kings in German. Directly at St. Mary in the capital, a gate that was led into the walled monastery here in the southeast corner of the city. You can still see this gate today, a beautiful Gothic building. Freshly restored just some time ago. But wait a minute, did I say Gothic? Then you know that something could hardly have come through this gate in 1164. In fact, the gate was built in this form much later, around 1330. But if Reinhardt really passed through here, it must have been through the previous gate in the Romanesque style. Or had the ship docked elsewhere in Cologne that had carried the three magi? Questions about questions which are not answered so far. However, visit this Dreikönigenpförtchen, the, the gate of the three kings, if you are ever in Cologne. Firstly, it is beautiful and delightful. Secondly, the location of this gate is a really nice and quiet place in a so-called Lichhof, a small square behind the choir of the Church of St. Mary in the capital, it is so beautifully quiet and peaceful despite all the traffic and the hustle and bustle of the crowds around it. We are lucky to still be able to look at it. After the secularization at the beginning of the 19th century, all monasteries in Cologne were dissolved. Also the monastery of St. Mary in the capital. The church remained as a new parish church, but the other buildings once belonging to the monastery were too readily demolished for new buildings and roads. This was also how the Dreikönigspferdchen, the Three Kings Gate, was to be destroyed, but none other than the Prussian King Frederick William IV, a Protestant by the way, who therefore should have had nothing to do with the veneration of saints or Catholic portals, 
saved the gate from demolition and even provided money to have it comprehensively renovated. During World War II, it shattered into its component parts after a nearby bomb hit in 1944. But an employee of the Cologne City Conservator, Wilhelm Schloms, had the presence of mind to collect the stones immediately afterwards after the bombing raid and put them somewhere safe. And by 1946, when the city was still largely a sea of rubble and reconstruction had barely begun, the Dreikönigspferdchen was standing again, giving people hope for a better future. Only the sculptures there nowadays are copies, but you can see the originals in the Museum Schnüttgen near Neumarkt Square, there, the original statues are no longer exposed to the weather and air pollution to decay. So, let's take a short break and then continue. Reinhold was, as said, almost never in Cologne. He preferred to be a general and politician at the side of his emperor in Italy, fighting wars. Yeah, making politics. Nevertheless, he has settled quite a bit over the distance here on the spot in Cologne. He had a completely new Romanesque palace built south of Cologne Cathedral, a palace worthy of an archbishop of Cologne. The palace from which Anna once fled was demolished for this purpose. The street directly south of Roncalliplatz Square and the cathedral Am Hof, in English meaning at the palace, still bears witness to the exact location of the elongated building in an east-west direction. But you can see nothing of it today, because in 1674 the now dilapidated palace was demolished. The archbishops had not resided here for a long time anyway. But we know exactly how the palace once looked like, thanks to numerous drawings over the time. I will show some of those images on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. In 1167, Reinhard von Dassel then proposed something almost revolutionary for the city, as once in 315, yes, many, many centuries before, the archbishop wanted to have a bridge built over the Rhine, this time made entirely of stone. Of course, he was not on site in Cologne, but perhaps um, leaned over the first sketches in an army camp on a table near Rome. As always, he was on the road as a general in the service of his Emperor Barbarossa. But there, after short illness, probably malaria, a disease that raged in Italy at that time in the warm summer months, death overtook him. Reinhardt's unexpected death put an end to the construction project. Ferries would still do the job then for many centuries, and it would take until 1859, so up until the modern era, for Cologne to have a fixed bridge over the Rhine again. Of course, Reinhard von Dassel is immortalized as a historical figure on the town hall tower. It shows him as a bishop, and in both hands he holds a small bag on which three crowns lie. An explanation is probably not necessary here. It is. Uh, showing that he has the three magi's relics in this back. He does not hold the bishop's staff in his hand directly, but leans it against his upper body, not really holding it with his hands. Whether this is meant to represent that he did not take the spiritual task as archbishop 
as important as other worthy tasks is beyond my circle of knowledge, but one could interpret it, however, quite in such a way. Reinhard von Dassler was buried in the old Cologne Cathedral in 1167. In 1290, he was then buried in a high grave in the already almost completed eastern part of today's Cologne Cathedral in the Mary Chapel in the choir. French revolutionary troops destroyed at the end of the 18th century the bronze grave plate with him as a figure lying on it, but the grave itself remained intact. Since 1905, a limestone figure depicting Reinhard as a bishop inspired by medieval models has taken its place as a gravestone. Visit him there when you are in Cologne Cathedral. By the way, he has a good view of the shrine of the Magi from there. However, the greatest thing Reinhard gave to the city, in which he had never really lived, was undoubtedly the theft, <coughs> I mean the transfer of the bones of the free Magi, or free kings, to Cologne. Take a look at the logo of my podcast. There you can see the historical coat of arms of the city of Cologne around the year 1500. Next to the eleven tears, flames or ermine tails, which is supposed to represent St. Ursula and her eleven or eleven thousand companions, you can see the three crowns of the three holy kings or the three magi. If you put something like that in your coat of arms, you can imagine how important these relics were for the city and for the self-image of that time of that city. The relics of the three magi or the three kings are the reason for the fantastic shrine of gold, precious stones and silver weighing a full 500 kilograms, which was completed in 1220. And even though most visitors nowadays probably don't visit it for primarily religious reasons, it still attracts 6 million visitors a year, six times the current population of Cologne. We should not forget the obvious also. Today's Cologne Cathedral, started in 1248, would never have been built in this gigantic form if these relics had not existed. Thus, the bones of the three kings, the three magi, are virtually packed in two shrines, in the gold shrine created by Nicholas of Verdun and the Cologne Cathedral made of 300,000 tons as a second shrine. Don't worry, we will give both objects, the shrine and modern Cologne Cathedral, enough time here, but that may be another time. At the end, maybe we should look again at Milan, where our episode had begun. Depending on the interpretation, this was either robbery or earned booty in the years between 1162 and 1164. In fact, the voices from Milan have never completely ceased over the centuries to reclaim the relics. To this day, the sarcophagus with the corresponding inscription stands there in the, in the church of St. Ostorgio, where the holy three magi once lay until 1162. So, do we have to fear in Cologne that one day busloads with numerous angry Milanese citizens might enter the Cologne Cathedral to take back what was taken now more than 860 years ago? No. I can give you the all clear. Everything's fine. Milan recovered part of the relics in 1903. Among them were two fibulae, a tibia and a vertebrae. 
Tebra, I hope I pronounce it correctly. Thus, you can, again, pay homage to the Magi directly in Cologne and in Milan, well, if you believe in it. Let's leave it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode about how the bones of the Magi were stole, um, came to Cologne, of course. Next episode, however, we have to look again at something that has to do with this episode. Cologne in the Middle Ages knew perfectly how to make a real business out of the veneration of the saints. Although actually forbidden, the trade in relics flourished in the city, and when saints were missing or you didn't have enough, you simply founded new ones. No, I'm not kidding, that really happened. How the people of Cologne made a real and successful business out of it, out of relics and the veneration of saints, you'll find out next episode, making the city indeed, <laughs> in the standards of that time, the Holy Cologne. At the end of this episode, I'm happy to welcome Thomas and Lucas as new members on Patreon. Thank you for your continued long-term support now. Many thanks also to those who tip me via PayPal, like Sabina, Sylvia, like you, you already gave me a tip for the, I think, hundredth time. Thank you. And also to Carl, Daniel, Arno, and to Manuela. Thank you very much. This episode was very easy for me to, to write down or to script because the story about the robbery, I mean, the, of course, the procurement of the uh, radics of the Free Magi is very familiar to me as a Cologne citizen. But of course, I would mention as literature, as always for this period, Köln im Hochmittelalter, so Cologne in the High Middle Ages by Hugo Stehkemper and Karl Dietmar. The legends and sagas here I also have largely from my memory in my head, but they occur in part also in Goswin Peter Garf's Cologne Legends book. So in the end, all that remains for me to say is thank you for listening, recommend me, you see summer break is now over, and auf Wiedersehen.